Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to episode 89. My name is Dwayne Osterlund, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Don't forget, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us a lot of exposure. And think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. Also, don't forget, I'm looking for more stories of hope. If you want to share your story of hope with the Addicted Mind audience, please go to theaddictedmind.com. Click on the tab on the side that says share your story of hope, record a 90 second audio clip, and hopefully I will feature that on the Addicted Mind podcast so that other people can hear that recovery is possible, that people do get better, and that we can all change and be our best selves. All right, on to this episode today, we have Kenneth Anderson from HAMS and the Harm Reduction Network. So he's going to talk about harm reduction, what that means, how that's different from other traditional forms of treatment like 12-step abstinence models and how the harm reduction model can help people who maybe they don't want to completely stop drinking or completely be abstinent but want to reduce their drinking or want to change it in some way. And one of the main things that he talked about is, I think, meeting somebody where they're at and allowing them to make the decision on how they want to live their life and what fits for them and letting them 
do that and creating a welcoming environment for that. So without further ado, let's start this episode with Kenneth Anderson. All right, everybody, welcome to The Addicted Mind. Today, my guest is Kenneth Anderson, and he is going to talk about HAMS and the Harm Reduction Network. Kenneth, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Kenneth Anderson. I am the founder and CEO of the HAMS Harm Reduction Network. It's a free of charge, a lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. We also have a handbook. It's called How to Change Your Drinking that I wrote. Our program has 17 elements. They're elements and not steps because they can be done in any order and they are all optional. And that's a bit about me and the program. So uh, go ahead and ask me some questions. Sure, you got it. Tell me a little bit about how you got into this and harm reduction. And we'll go into what that means as well. But tell me a little bit about you and your story. Oh, sure. Well, you know, Not surprisingly, I had some problems with alcohol. I mean, we are an alcohol-focused group, although we're not exclusive to that. We don't stop people from talking about other uh, addictions, other problems that they might have. But our big focus is on alcohol because nobody was doing that. So I used to drink a lot, and it was getting me in some trouble, and I got involved with uh, several different groups. I tried Alcoholics Anonymous. That didn't fit me well. I tried Moderation Management. I was there for quite a while. I was actually working for them for a while. And uh, kind of while I was there at Moderation Management, I really developed the uh, harm reduction approach. Because once I learned about harm reduction, I got really fascinated uh, by the concept I started volunteering at the needle exchange program in Minneapolis, and that was just a great experience, and it taught me so many things, uh, totally changed my perspective, turned my head around completely from everything I thought before, and I realized the importance of encouraging every positive change. I mean, Using clean needles is better than sharing used needles because you prevent transmission of disease. I mean, it should be a no-brainer, but, you know, it's still being fought in the United States, in some states, unbelievably. I mean, Europe must look at us aghast and say, what is wrong with these people? Well, let's go back a little bit because let's talk about what's the model of harm reduction. I mean, what does that mean? Like when we look at harm reduction and versus maybe the abstinence model, Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about like that. Well, the abstinence model, the problem is the abstinence model says if you're not perfectly abstinent and completely abstinent all the time, you're a totally worthless piece of shit. And any improvement that you make is not of any value at all. You have to, it's a totally perfectionistic model. You know, it's very strange that AA has a motto, progress, not perfection, when they demand perfection and you're totally shamed and ostracized for any imperfection. But, well, I'm not going to bash AA, so let's not go into that too much. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. The harm reduction model is very, very different. I mean, it's a very pragmatic model in the United States. Well, 
In fact, it really got started in Holland, but it was the same in both places. Drug users saw their friends dying from contracting HIV and getting AIDS. And they said, hey, now nobody's doing anything about this for us drug users, so we're going to do something ourselves. We're going to hand out clean needles so that our friends don't die. It was all about saving people you love, saving your friends that you use drugs with, saving your fellow drug users. And that was the genesis. I mean, it was illegal in the United States. Dale is illegal in many places. The legal situation is very complex. Right. And I think when we look at harm reduction, because it's about mitigating harm as much as possible and is different from that abstinence model where they, you know, demand 100% sobriety. And this says, look, we're not going to worry about that. We're going to just, how do we reduce the risk? How do we reduce the harm that's happening to you? And maybe that's not 100% abstinence. Uh, That's correct. And well, at this point, we should really mention that harm reduction, as I said, it encourages every positive change. The late Dan Big of the Chicago Recovery Alliance really introduced that slogan. And he was a very influential person on all of us in the harm reduction movement. You know, a good friend of mine before he passed away recently. But it's about every positive change. But that doesn't mean that we're opposed to abstinence because that can be a good change for some people. We want to encourage people to pick a goal that fits them, something that is doable and something that's right. I mean, a lot of people come into harm reduction, and eventually they choose to abstain from whatever was causing them problems. A lot of others, uh, you know, reduce their use or they reduce their risks of whatever they were involved with, and that's fine too. You know, in harm reduction, there's not someone up there telling you that, you know, this is the only right thing, you must have this goal. Rather, it's about saying, okay, what's good for you? What do you need? What can we do to help you? Right. And so a person can kind of come into harm reduction where they're at and do what fits right for them. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. And as I said, harm reduction includes abstinence in the broad definition of harm reduction. Sometimes the term is used more narrowly just uh, to uh, talk about uh, people who are still using, but it can also be used more broadly to encompass everything that reduces harm, including abstinence, including moderation, including being safer, giving up drinking and driving, not sharing needles anymore. They're all harm reduction. Right. So really working to create a better quality of life. And also for some people who maybe are really struggling with their addiction are not ready to give it up at this point and to get to abstinence, it doesn't really matter in the sense that they're still welcome and they can still come in and they can still work on themselves. There's a lot of things they can do despite just abstinence. It's not the only solution to your life or your problem or your addiction or. Exactly. And we don't even talk about that as being a solution. I mean, we don't talk to people about, do you want to get to abstinence eventually? We want to talk to people about where they are at right now. What are your needs? What do you want? What will make your life better? What can be an improvement? I mean, some people continue to drink or use heroin or whatever drug for the rest of their lives, but some of them go from addictive use to 
reduced use. Yeah, there's a big myth, of, for instance, about heroin that uh, no one ever moderates their use and it only increases. And it's not true. If you actually look at the research data, there's a huge paper that came out of the Rhone Tree Foundation, I believe it was, all about people that reduced their heroin use. They went from addictive use to occasional use. And it happens with any substance, any behavior. Some are harder to change than others. Cigarettes are really hard to go from, you know, smoking a pack a day to smoking one cigarette a week. Some people do it. There's not a lot of people that do that. You know, the percentage of moderating your smoking are small. It's probably about 5% or something in that area. Heroin is also difficult to moderate. So the percentages on that are pretty small. No one really has a good statistic. It does happen. With alcohol, it's actually a lot more common. If you look at the National Epidemiological Study of Alcohol and Related Conditions, which was done by our government, it was done by the National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, and it uh, surveyed over 40,000 people. So it was a big, big study. And they found that approximately half of people with uh, alcohol dependence, as defined by the DSM-4, they uh, recovered by controlling their drinking, and about half recovered by abstaining. Right, yeah. And what's really interesting, over the long-term period, looked over the lifetime, 90% of people recover. Only about 10, I think it was 15% of those get any treatment or go to AA or anything. So about 85% actually recover on their own. Right, which is kind of that myth that you can't recover on your own, that you have to do some kind of program. And the reality is, is that no, a lot of people decide to make changes and do it and that they're able to walk away from that. Now, some people say, well, then they're not really an addict. Well, I don't like the term addict. It's not used in the DSM-4. It does appear in the DSM-5 under gambling, interestingly. But, you know, the dsm or uses the terms alcohol dependence, alcohol abuse, and alcohol use disorder. And alcohol use disorder is either dependence or abuse. So if you have one or the other or both, you have an alcohol use disorder. But, you know, so if we're going by the scientific definition that's contained in the DSM-4 for alcohol dependence, and this was specifically for dependence, 90% of people with that diagnosis recover and half of those who recover do it by controlled drinking. It does take a long time. The average is 14 years between onset of dependence and recovery. So that can be a long time, and it can look like, wow, it's never going to change. But it does. And the numbers are pretty much 5% per year recover from the time of onset. So some people will recover within the first year. Some people will recover, uh, you know, after 60 years but the average is 14 years. Okay, and that's what the research says. I wonder like, you know, a group like HAMS and using harm reduction would help people who are struggling out there with addiction to maybe move that a little bit faster. I don't know. That's the whole intent. You know, it hasn't been measured yet. It's really difficult to measure the effect of support groups because people can come and go as they please. You know, it's different when you have a randomized controlled trial with a bunch of people that are sent to treatment. 
and affects the environment and then get followed up, that's a little easier to actually collect data from. You know, when you have a support group like Alcoholics Anonymous, HAMS, Moderation Management, Smart Recovery, it's really hard to collect data because people just come in when they want to, they leave when they want to, they may reconnect later, they may not. It's a difficult thing to do research on. To measure its effectiveness and its level of effectiveness, I would guess, my guess, and this is just my gut, I have no idea if this is based on any science or whatever, is that support groups have some kind of positive effect and impact. We know that. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems, you know, for the people that like the group, they seem to be really helpful. So, you know, for people that really are put off by the group, they're probably not going to benefit from it. And, you know, I don't encourage people to continue to participate in any group if they feel uncomfortable there. And I think that's a big problem in our country right now in the United States, that people get pushed into AA regardless of who they are, regardless if it's a good fit or a bad fit. Right. Well, I think that was part of addiction treatment in general. Nobody knew what to do with addiction or how to treat it. And this was the only thing that was out there. So at the time, you know, and I think in our culture, I think it's changing, but it's like, okay, do that because we don't know how else to help you. It's interesting. There were actually a great number of approaches to addiction treatment uh, earlier on. I'm currently writing a history of addiction treatment in America, so I have all this stuff in my head. Oh, that would be so great. I'd love to read that. So it's getting huge. Aversion therapy was actually quite big, especially the West Coast up into the 1980s. There was a chain of aversion therapy hospitals that had about 25 hospitals, and you really had an alternative. Can you define what aversion therapy is? Aversion therapy for alcohol, what they used is something that's called conditioned taste aversion. So you make the person vomit when they drink. So you inject them with an emetic and uh, time it. So as soon as they take that first drink, they're going to throw it up immediately. And conditioned taste aversion has been studied uh, in great detail for many decades. Research goes back to the 1950s. And it forms a very strong conditioned response against ingesting something. So it works with eating, basically. It doesn't work with other behaviors like conditioning you to stay in a place or avoid a place. Electric shock works for that. So that, those sound very brutal. <laughs> well, depends on your point of view. Yeah. I mean, I think it says to s something about how, you know, when someone is struggling with addiction and they want to change and the lengths they'll go sometimes to try and change that behavior can be huge. Well, I want to go back to what you said about it sounds brutal. To me, taking away a person's First Amendment right to a religious freedom and telling them that they must uh, rely on a higher power to cure their disease, I find that extremely brutal. Yeah, no, I could understand that too. Yeah. I find that far more brutal than, uh, you know, giving someone an emetic and having them throw up. Right. Yeah. Like if someone is forced into a group they don't agree with. Yeah. There's definitely problems with that. And, you know, I mean, medical treatments in general, if you just look at them for brutality, uh, they're pretty damn brutal. Think about surgery, cutting someone open with a knife. That's brutal. Yeah. But if you've got cancer, isn't it better to get it cut out? Oh, yeah. No, it's, I can totally agree with that. 
you know, and that's what I'm saying. It's like when you have an addiction and, you know, that addiction or that dependence is destroying your life, you will go to extremes to try and change that. And is that better? Yeah, maybe it is. Well, for a lot of people, it's kind of interesting because no one was coerced into aversion therapy for alcohol. Right. They were all there voluntarily. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of comparing that to where people by the courts are mandated to go to 12 step. And that really isn't fair for them either, because there's a lot of religious elements in the 12 step program. And for someone who doesn't have that belief system, yeah, that would be like, yeah, that's not really fair. Mm-hmm. I'm really right. I personally don't believe in uh court ordering people into treatment, into any sort of treatment. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you drive in your automobile and you kill somebody with it, it really doesn't matter if you're drunk or sober. You are responsible for what you did, and there should be a punishment for that. So it should not be something that people get treated for. Yeah, but if you're knowingly incapacitated you know, you're drunk and you kill somebody. I think that's different from driving and you're not drunk and you're doing your best to be a good driver and you hit somebody and kill somebody. I think there is a big difference there. No, I don't really. If you're going to uh, get drunk, you should plan it ahead of time. I would agree with that. You should hide your car keys. Uh, You should be responsible or you should give them to someone or you should lock them in a time lock safe until you know you're going to be sobered up. You are responsible. Yes. Getting drunk is a conscious act. Yes. And you should prepare yourself ahead of time so that you don't endanger other people. And I think that, yeah, people are responsible for their actions when they are drunk. They should have planned things ahead of time. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's where what you're saying is like a harm reduction comes in. It's like, look, if you're going to drink, let's do it responsibly. Let's do it in a way that is going to be as minimal harmful to yourself, whatever that fits for you or wherever that line is and minimally harmful to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is actually a huge part of our program. One of the elements is about making a plan. Right. And we want people to make a plan for their drinking, especially if they've had problems in the past, getting in trouble, doing things that are unsafe. We want people to make a safety plan. Yeah, definitely. I think that is, you know, incredibly helpful for people. And this can be a place for people who, you know, maybe they're they're not ready for abstinence or that's not going to be a fit for them, which is fine. But this gives them a place to look at their behaviors, make choices, discuss it in a non-shaming environment. Yeah, exactly. And I've often said, you know, we are the only group where you can come in and say, I like to get drunk every day and I used to drink and drive and I still want to get drunk every day, but I don't want to drive anymore when I'm drunk. And we will say, wow, that's really great. Right. And support you in that decision. Mm -hmm. Right. And help you, you make that improvement in your life. Yes, exactly. So, you know, that's one of the things that makes our group quite unique from uh, other programs like moderation-based programs, which kind of say, you know, stick within these moderate drinking limits. And if you exceed them, you should leave here and go to an abstinence-based program, which, you know, that's one of the problems I had when I was working with moderation management. And, you know, there were a lot of people coming in that were making uh, positive changes, but they didn't want to stop uh, their intoxication days. Right. Actually, I didn't want to. Right. So back to where we started with me sharing 
So currently I like to uh, drink one day per week Mm -hmm. and abstain the other six. And when I drink, I will buy a fifth of whiskey and that's 750 milliliters. And I will take it home, watch the movies and drink it all. And when it's gone, I go to sleep. Right. It's very safe. It's not moderate drinking by any means. It's definitely a day of heavy drinking per week, but I'm good with that. That fits me. Yeah. And it sounds like that's where you're at and that's where you want to be. And I'm definitely more open to people making decisions about how their life should be for themselves and that I am not in anybody else. So for me, I can't say what's going to be good for you or not for you. Here's what we know. Here's what we know about drinking. Here's the, you know, make the decision for yourself, inform yourself, and then that's up to you. And well, just on this topic, I used to drink four times that much. So it's, you know, I've cut down to just a fraction and I've been on this plan for the past 20 years. So it's very stable for me. It's a good fit. It feels right. It feels good. And you're comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important message that people have to hear is that, you know, everybody has to make that decision for themselves where they want to be in their life. Exactly. And what works for one person may not work for another person. And what works for that person may not work for that person. And then that's okay. And that there are options out there to choose from to live your best life. Mm -hmm. And on the same topic, you can come to our group and be drinking uh, one glass of wine a week and say, well, I want to quit completely because I don't want alcohol in my life at all. Right. And we'll also say, great, we'll support you in that. That's your choice. Right. Yeah. And I think also an element in this too, that I think is very important to know is that I think when people feel that autonomy to be able to make their own decisions, that sometimes they'll come to their own conclusion about improving their life in a way that benefits them. Right. Mm -hmm. And when we try and force people to do these things, I think we have a much higher failure rate. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, some people do like a lot of structure, right? Yeah. Some people like a very structured program that just tells them this is what you do. Here are the 12 steps. You do them in this order. Here's step one. That's where you start. Some people like a structured program like that, and that's fine. It's certainly available to people who want it. Our program is very unstructured. It's very anarchic. I think a lot of our members basically are people who don't want to be told what to do. They're the people that tell them what to do. They're going to do the exact opposite. Right. Yeah, no, totally, totally. So tell me a little bit more about how people find this program. How do they get there? And Well, we have a website. It's hams.cc and hams is spelled H-A-M as in Mary S. It's like the kind of hams you eat uh, and it stands for harm reduction, abstinence, and moderation support, because we wanted to make it clear that we support whatever you want to do. So hams.cc is the website. A lot of people get to our program through the website. It's very popular. Our book is pretty highly ranked on Amazon. I was just checking yesterday. Uh, We've sold about 22,000 copies. Wow. So a lot of people are really interested in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In the past 10 years, it was published 10 years ago. So 
Yeah, 22,000 copies in 10 years. So it's not bad. It's pretty good for a self-published book. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So one more question. If someone out there is listening to this and maybe they're thinking about changing their drinking habit or some other habit that they don't like in their life or is maybe causing them distress, what would you want to tell them? Well, there's a lot of ways to approach this. If you like to participate in groups online, we have online groups. We have a Facebook group that's very popular. We also have a forum that's quite popular. You can get to those through our website. So one thing you can do is participate in the group. Some people don't want to participate in groups, and that's fine too. You don't have to participate in a group to change your habits. Right. So you can just get our book and just read the book and just do it on your own if you want to. Actually, there's enough information on the website that you can do it on your own for free. So all the essentials, the worksheets are all on the website and you can do the whole thing for free. The book gives you some more depth and detail and it's how we uh, support the program and stay in business. So we do want to sell it. Right. Sure. Yeah. So people can go there and find your information and get some of the stuff. And if this is something that fits for them, that they can look into it and investigate it further. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Is there anything else you want to add or you think should be said? Or Well, we have a couple of models, but uh, the one that's very popular is better is better. Better is better. I like it. Yeah. We stole it from uh, software engineers. <laughs> That's where it originated, apparently. <laughs> okay. Hey, but it works. Better is better. And, you know, I think that, you know, any way in which people can get help and improve their life is worth looking at and understanding more. And definitely, I think this program can speak to a lot of people who need this kind of help that fits for them. Yes, exactly. So this is an option for the people that we're a good fit for. I think we fit them very well. That's what we're all about. Well, thank you, Kenneth, for coming on to The Addicted Mind. I appreciate your time and I appreciate you sharing your experience and wisdom. Oh, thank you for having me here. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com slash 89. Don't forget, rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us a lot of exposure and helps people find the show. And also join our Facebook group. Go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join, and continue the conversation online there. If you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, share it with a friend or someone you think could benefit from the podcast and the information in here. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. Oh, hey, it's Aaron. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche, sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. 
everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.